Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Mary Simon and Liz Lenevy. As many of us are, I am a member of a listserv. This one is of a women's caucus and a national organization that I'm involved in. And this week, an opinion was sent around, a dissenting opinion written by a judge in Florida who was clearly irritated that in some pleadings, in some briefing done by one of the parties, she was referred to as he. She had written a dissent in a previous opinion, and it was being referred to. And so she wrote a very quick but poignant opinion that I would like to share. She says, I write to address the motion for rehearing's reference to me and my dissenting opinion. In the motion for rehearing, the movement states, Judge W. opined he would hold that section 39.8061F is unconstitutional. The appellate panel is known, and a quick look at the court's website would reveal that the movement has clearly used the wrong personal pronoun in referring to me. Granted, gendered pronouns are tricky this day and age, but, quote, he, close quote, is not the default universal personal pronoun. More importantly, this error reveals the tenacious grip that the male image has in the legal profession to the detriment of women who have joined the profession in droves since I began practicing 48 years ago. It still is an issue that women are mistaken for court reporters or paralegals by both judges and lawyers. No man would suffer that same misidentification, which relegates the women to a less important role. We all need to be cognizant and remove from our thinking the male-centric image of lawyers and judges. It is not hard, but it requires raising one's consciousness of the issue. And it is somewhat of a surprise that it has persisted for so long. After all, the iconic figure holding the scales of justice is a lady. So that got me thinking, particularly about the phrase persisted for so long and I have a book. It's entitled Stories from Trailblazing Women Lawyers, Lives in the Law, and it's written by Jill Norgren. There was a project by the American Bar Association a number of years ago in an effort to capture stories of trailblazing women attorneys. And Ms. Norgren was approached to take those recordings, I believe there were 100, and distill them down into a book. And this is what became of it. She starts with an introduction, a little bit of a historical analysis, which is, I thought, interesting in light of this judge's notion that this has been going on for so long. So a little context. I had asked Liz this before we started recording. When do you think the first time women were admitted into law schools. Like what was, give me a decade for that. And Liz, what did you say? I guessed the, or actually I gave a very specific year because I don't know how to follow instructions. And I said 1865. <laughs> and I was amazed because that's so close. It appears that there were law schools in the 1860s and 1870s that allowed women. Now those women didn't get jobs anywhere, 
But there were some law schools that accepted women in the 1870s and 1880s. There were a number, uh, Belva Lockwood, Catherine McCullough, Layla Robinson, a handful of women attorneys that this author talks about. Now, they weren't recorded. Uh, It was way before their time, but as an historical context. And what struck me about that is upon reading some of the research that Ms. Norgren had done, she discovered that these early women, this handful of early women, communicated with each other. She writes, working with the technologies of their day, women lawyers also used newspapers and chain letters to exchange information and opinions, as well as to pass along the names of clients to women colleagues in other parts of the country. That's what we do today, right? We've got listservs. We've got women caucus groups that email each other. That's how I got this opinion from the Florida judge is through a listserv. So the communication has been going on for 140 years, which I think is wonderful. But what struck me, in addition to recognizing that this communication has gone on, the writer goes on to say that in their chain letters, members of what they called the Equity Club, that was their name, copied out personal news. In their writing, they also wrestled with myriad personal issues, including the propriety of wearing their hats in court, acceptance of pro bono clients, and whether to think of themselves as women lawyers or simply lawyers. This is the same stuff we talk about all the time. And I wrote them down, I think maybe with the exception of pro bono work, which maybe that could be a future episode. We have an episode on what to wear to court. We made an entire episode about it. I think we've we've made multiple episodes on distinguishing ourselves from our male colleagues and and both the similarities and differences in that experience and and how do we refer to ourselves. So it's this odd realization that even though so much time has passed, how much has really changed? Right. <laughs> right. So in another area, the author says the equity club women also interrogated themselves as to whether the, quote, female constitution, close quote, permitted them to compete as attorneys. The correspondents did not see themselves as prisoners of the female condition, yet they understood that doing the work of housewife and lawyer could cause a woman's health to suffer. Many practiced regimens for healthy living that included calisthenics, good diet, dress reform, And even in Belva Lockwood's case, one of the very early lawyers, the regular use of an adult tricycle. What's the modern adult tricycle? Belva was riding the Peloton. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we've got women from 140 years ago talking about whether to wear hats in court, whether to have, quote, dress reform, which I'm sure was about what to wear. And then get this. This is my favorite part. The young Catherine McCullough spared no words in giving her advice. Quote, my creed includes no corset, broad, low-heeled shoes, reform undergarments, dresses in one piece hanging from the shoulders, no tea, little coffee or pork, few pies and cakes, much sleep, a little hoeing in the flower beds, and a day in bed when occasion demands instead of sitting and suffering. You know what that sounds like? What? It's work-life balance. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's how do I balance being an attorney with 
being a mother, a wife, and also hopefully a human being. Right. Being alive. Yeah. Being a a human outside of all of these other roles. So other than low heeled shoes, I'm with her. (laughs) I I will agree. Oh, I I disagree on the little coffee. Okay. Good. I need a lot of coffee. Good point. Good point. Well, oh man, it's just so strange. And I think about if these women you know, if we had the ability to just talk to these women today and say, thank you for all of your your contributions and for all of your hard work. We're sitting here in 2022. I'm going to tell you, we're still grappling with what do we wear to court and how much time do we dedicate to our profession versus everything else we have going on in our life. And in fact, these conversations still consume quite a bit of our days. Right. It's remarkable. And I'm not sure what I expected women lawyers from 130 years ago to talk about, it shouldn't surprise us that they had a lot of the same topics that we discuss. But it is a little bit disheartening to think that we are still spending time on these same topics, including having to read and write opinions where we're being mislabeled as he's instead of she's. So today, however... I don't want this to be about, oh, nothing's changed, everything is still bad. Instead, I want to talk about how we have progressed. So in uh, 1900, so 120 years ago, the women lawyers approached 1,000 in the country, which, again, I'm not sure if I put a lot of thought into this, but that seemed like a pretty strong number for 1900 they were still discouraged from actually practicing law, but there were a thousand women. And I thought to myself, look, if someone said to me in 1993, when I started law school, you know, this is going to be hard work. It's going to take a lot of time and energy and stress and presumably money. And when you get out, you might not be able to make a living. I mean, who would do that? But then I thought, well, what would that sound like today? Well, it's going to take a lot of time and effort and stress and money. And when you get out, you might get a job, but only about 15% of you will actually make it to equity partners and law firms. That's the truth of today's numbers. And I know I just said it wasn't going to be a bummer of an episode, but we have progressed quite a bit. In 2020, the statistics were that women were 37.7% of the profession. Now, I still don't quite understand that, considering we've been 50% of the law school classes since the early 90s. But I think it is that might just be math. We might just be catching up. (laughs) (laughs) But progress has most certainly been made. And one of the biggest challenges that remains is our numbers. We just have to keep going to law school And we just have to keep showing up. And I don't mean to say that's just as simple as we just need to go to law school and and show up to work and just put our heads down and keep working. It's going to take more than that. But I am trying to look at the bright side and say in 1900, we were a thousand women. But it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that decent numbers of women actually started going to law school. And it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that women were starting to get hired, largely in government jobs. And I do think there's a lot of information right now, a lot of emphasis, a lot of acknowledgement of 
the importance of women attorneys in the profession, what we bring to the table. And I believe we're getting better at promoting ourselves and at not being shy or quiet about what we deserve and why we deserve it. How do you feel about it? I agree. Overall, I agree. I I feel that, especially when you've put that historical timeline together, it feels like progress was moving so slowly. But now, obviously, we are not at perfect equilibrium where we should be. I mean, just yesterday, I had been asked to call another lawyer back. He had reached out to an attorney here, a male attorney here. That attorney was not available, asked me, can you call this guy back, see what's going on? So I call him and I do my introduction, say my name, I state my job title, I state my employer, and I get about mm, 10 seconds into explaining why I'm calling him. And he just cuts me off. He interrupts, jumps in and says, wait, are you a lawyer? And I'm thinking, I have just explained who I am. Uh, Sir, I don't know how to make it much clearer. The only other thing you can discern about me is that I have a feminine sounding voice. That's the only thing you've picked up. You understand where I work. You should understand why I'm calling. My immediate assumption is you're only thinking that I might not be a lawyer because I sound like a woman. And I would bet money, I bet money that he would not have asked a man or someone with a masculine sounding voice that question. No way. He assumed because of your voice that you were just an assistant calling back. And apparently that's not what he wanted. He did not want to just talk to an assistant. He wanted to talk to a lawyer and assumed that if you were a woman, you must only be an assistant. That is the impression I got from him. Because why else would I be calling you? And so I I paused and I said, yep, sure am. And then I continued with the rest of, of where he had cut me off. And I just couldn't shake that nagging feeling that he had only done it because of, of the sound of my voice. When I'm in those moments, I do... What I always do, which is text a couple of the ladies here at the firm saying, I'm not crazy, right? Like, please affirm that I have picked up on that. And everyone said, yep, that's exactly what happened. So I I think about that, but I also put it in context of this man is very old. I'm sure he came from a different generation. And I understand that not all men, I know, I know, but I have to assume because those incidents, they happen all the time and they're little, they're subtle. And they're slight, and it almost feels like a death by a thousand cuts. Right. And I have to assume, though, that just if I'm going to keep in this practice, <laughs> I'm convincing myself that that generation, an older generation where maybe they didn't see as many women in their law school class or they haven't seen as many women in their firm, that as they retire and, and they leave the profession, we're going to get more progressive amongst our colleagues. Now, I'm I'm not saying that that's going to be a perfect fix. I'm sure that there are men my age who are great. And I'm sure that there are men in that older generation that are wonderful mentors and supporters of young female attorneys and, and their female colleagues. So I understand that I'm painting with a really broad brush right now. But I just in my personal experience, every generation seems to get a little bit better. I know Liz, that telling stories like that may feel like a little thing and maybe like you're complaining or maybe it's not a big deal. But those are the kind of stories that add up that, as you say, death by a thousand cuts that are just irritating, that shouldn't have to be a part of your day. And as time goes on and as those folks that you mentioned move on 
I think we will be in a better place. And I think even the podcasts like ours that are very open about telling these stories and about acknowledging these acts of discrimination, however small, is important. I have to share a story of one of my law school classmates because this one just goes over the top. And my friend from law school, she's working on a case with all male attorneys. And one of the attorneys, you know, does the classic gentleman, 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 and all the case correspondence. And finally, my friend kind of responded back in a way that acknowledged the fact that she's not a gentleman. And then on future correspondence, this other lawyer put, and he's an older man, I'm going to refer to my friend as um, Amy. <laughs> now he put on the correspondence, Amy and others. Uh. <laughs> I, I'm like, what can he, does he not know how to address a female no. attorney? Or like, is she an alien? He only knows how to say gentleman or this lawyer's name and gentleman. Or the way that he phrases it in emails, it like, it trips him up to address it. All right. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this gentleman knows exactly how to refer to other lawyers by using phrases such as counsel or any other non all. Yes. <laughs> all. Dear all to whom may concern counsel. And he's being incredibly passive aggressive by addressing Amy and others. That is not by accident. That's him not being able to figure out how to do this. <laughs> and something else that I was thinking about, Amy, when you were kind of giving us a more of like a historical statistical breakdown of women in the legal profession, I know more women who they're not the first attorney in their family like me, but the first attorney is a man. And I was thinking, and I don't think I know any female attorneys my tenure who aren't first attorney in their family, but they're following a female above them. And so I think over time, it'd be interesting to look at women lawyers who have daughters who are women lawyers. And the reason it particularly strikes me is because obviously my dad is John and I can't tell you almost every attorney who I work with who is a man, his tenure or, or more will always like pull me aside at some point in a case and say, now, Maria, I really want to talk to you about this. And I've known your dad for many, many years. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's some reason that I just don't know about that lawyers like to say that, to, maybe to get me to agree to something that they say my dad has in the past. But every male attorney will always say, I'd love to go grab a drink with your dad. And me and him have been friends for 20 years. And I'm like, we're in the middle of a deposition and you just want to stipulate to something. We don't need to talk about how well buddy-buddy you are with my dad. And I always think about it because it's like the old boys club. And I've never thought about it in terms of a mom and a daughter duo. And, and I'm excited for the next generations to come where that might be the case. I love that idea. So we're counting on Nora and Charlotte and Hazel. Yeah, of course, <laughs> Nora can do whatever she wants and be whoever she wants. But if she wanted to be a lawyer, that would also be fine. You know, it's interesting, Mary, that you've pointed that out because that is something I've never thought of. I can't think of a female lineage, and I'm sure they're out there. I know they're out. They have to be out there. But I personally can't think of any female lineage of attorneys. I had a conversation with a law school professor and I told her, 
I don't think I want to go clerk at Simon because I don't know if I just want to go work at my dad's firm. And she said to me, Amy Gunn's there. Aww. Why don't you go work for Amy Gunn and you won't be working for your dad and then frame it that way in your mind? Because if I had a chance to work with Amy Gunn, I would. And I said, okay. So it's a weird kind of, you know, female. Lineage. I don't think I knew that story. That's a sweet story. I appreciate that. One of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation today was number one, it's always on our minds. One of the important goals of our podcast is to spread awareness. And for women attorneys, women trial attorneys in particular, to be the norm. We want to be seen as not just this little unicorn group of women lawyers, but we want to talk about things that happen to us every day, whether it's particular to, you know, legal skills or to legal adjacent skills or hard skills and soft skills like we talk about. But I want to normalize what we do. I want those listeners out there to not feel alone, to not feel like, you know, we have to really struggle to think about the women trial attorneys out there. I want it to feel like there's a lot of us because there really are. There are days where this, there are lots of days. There are weeks on, on stretch out, it seems sometimes, where this job is really hard, mm -hmm. really hard. And just the nature of this job is hard. And then if you add on the top, you know, this, this additional layer of I am different from so many of my colleagues and I may be discriminated against either by the people around me or clients. You know, if, if a client is worried about hiring a woman or opposing counsel or a judge, whatever, it does start to wear on you. And I think it's so important to have that camaraderie to fall back on. One, for tips and advice and mentorship, but two, just sometimes to vent. That's what our group chat is. How often are we just venting about a bad experience we've had with an opposing counsel or with a client or with a judge or whatever, because we just need that camaraderie. You need someone to listen. On the daily. <laughs> yeah, you do. You need someone to listen and to share the experience with, because then you can just feel more comfortable about it, braver about going through it and facing it. I'm curious as to how this plays across different professions. But there's one thing that I am encouraged and feel pretty good about. And then one that I obviously still have to work on a ton. And the only reason I'm saying the medical profession is because we often work with medical experts and there are doctors and hospitals on the other sides of our cases. And I oftentimes will refer to an expert as a he or assume it's a he until I see a, a name that is, you know, or I meet her or another lawyer will tell me her. And I'm like, oh, dang, like I'm the one who always talks about this. And here I am <laughs> assuming that all the doctors or guys are all medical experts or men. And I still have to work on that. And I, it makes you wonder just across different professions how these statistics are playing out. But one aspect that I am pretty encouraged by is that there are a good amount of female judges and more and more as time goes on. And my default to judge is usually her because I've been in front of so many female judges, but that's one aspect of it that I find encouraging. So this notion that I picked up on our discussion today is some things take time. We, I think by nature, are not terribly patient people. It sort of fits our personality. 
But I think patience does pay off. And I wrote an article a few years ago for a local bar magazine, and that was kind of the theme. I'll read just a bit of it. One day at a time. It can be frustrating to go slowly. I've always been told that patience is a virtue, that it will be rewarded. But for all the times being patient has seemingly paid off, I am willing to bet that waiting and being contented has resulted in multiple missed opportunities, continued status quo, and unequal results. When I pick a jury, I begin my voir dire by referencing Lady Justice. Her eyes are blindfolded. The scales she holds are balanced and empty because, ladies and gentlemen, when you walk into this courtroom, in order for this process to be fair, no one side can begin this trial with the scales tipped for or against them. Allowing that to happen would be unjust, anathema to our civil justice system. We must start at equal. Women lawyers, the scales have been tipped against us in legal professions since the beginning. It's not fair, but it's true. Anyone who pays attention to statistics in this area knows that reality. And while much progress has been made, inequity, particularly in pay and in leadership positions at firms and in organizations, glaringly remains. I've struggled for years to understand why it is that women, despite having made up half of law school classes for over 25 years, aren't half of the equity partners, judges, and leaders of the bar by now. While I recognize there are many, many factors that go into that truth, at least anecdotally, part of the reason is that women find it easier to advocate for others than for ourselves. Advocating for ourselves means not only standing up for yourself, but also for those women around you in the courtroom, conference room, and classroom. Slow evolution is endemic in the legal profession. We honor long-standing legal precedent, which by its very definition has been around for years and is hard to change. We rely on settled notions of law and practice in order to best advise our clients. We have long careers, meaning even though women have been entering the legal profession in strong, steady numbers for over 25 years, we are still a minority of the population. So we must do more than just be patient and hope that once enough time goes by, everything will even out. We don't have time for that. We must be willing to act. And I have a few suggestions, some easy, some more challenging. And in the article, I list my suggestions. So I'm gonna go ahead and just throw those out there, ladies. Get involved in an organization, pick at least one, but don't stop at simply being a member, be a leader. Yes, it takes time. Yes, we know you are trying to balance a lot, but do it. Be a mentor, or if you're just starting out in this business, find a mentor. Make that phone call, go to that lunch, or walk up to that person at a networking event. Sit at the table. Don't sit in the row of chairs circling the perimeter of the room, the actual table. Hire women, pick women mediators, choose women to be on the panel that you are putting together and not just to discuss our issues. Say yes to being on the panel yourself. Find your voice, better yet, use your voice. We are lawyers, we've been trained to do this. You know when you need to speak up, stop talking yourself out of it. When you feel your heart racing because you disagree with what's being said, stand up and be heard. This is imperative. Wake up, look around, believe in yourself. Don't wait for your case, your client, your raise, or your appointment to the compensation committee to come to you. Go get it. Do something that scares you. Ask for a raise, take the lead in that client meeting or expert deposition, insist on arguing the motion that you wrote. 
be the first. Really not too surprisingly, there are many firsts for women in this profession yet to take place. Find out what that is in your world and make it happen. We can work one day at a time for positive change. We can strive one day at a time for better opportunities. We can argue one day at a time for rightful recognition. But we must do these things every day, tirelessly, fearlessly, confidently, and with the knowledge that while patience may be a virtue, inequity is the precedence and will remain that way if we let it. The moral of the story is show up, sit down, and speak out. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Please give us your comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Episodes drop every Wednesday. Please download and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.